We're going to look at the very end of Matthew 16, and then uh, the first part of Matthew 17 this morning. The text is there on the next page of the bulletin, if you didn't bring a Bible with you. <clears throat> um, so as you're turning there and finding your seat, just say, uh, my wife has some inter- interesting hobbies. She likes to range, uh, raise uh, dangerous and exotic animals like honeybees <laughs> and uh, quails and rabbits. <laughs> uh, and right now, uh, she's raising some caterpillars, uh, ones that will turn into these things called cinnabar moths, which are really vivid, kind of red and black. Uh, found those at the beach, and she brought some home, and uh, that's fun. So <clears throat> that process of transformation from caterpillar to moth, from caterpillar to, to butterfly, that's, uh, it's so fascinating. Maybe you remember uh, being a child, uh, loving to discover the strange fact that caterpillars undergo this thing called metamorphosis. Uh, they start off as these little, these little slinky creatures, right? They're slinkies, you know? Scooting along the earth, bound to the earth. Uh, they create a chrysalis around themselves. It's this protective sheath. And inside of there, they basically liquefy into a puddle of goo. They totally, their body disintegrates in this mess and then uh, reforms, reforms a new creature, right? They change their form entirely. They emerge something uh, beautiful and uh, free to fly the heavens, not bound to the earth anymore. Right? They can go miles and miles on their beautiful wings. and it's, So it's almost like they go into their little tomb, and they die, and they become new. And I mention metamorphosis uh, because it is a word that appears in our passage. Jesus takes three of his disciples up a high mountain where it says he was transfigured. And that word literally is he was metamorphosed. Uh, before them. Now, this metamorphosis for Jesus that is recorded here in Matthew 17, uh, this was not permanent, not yet. This was a momentary vision of what Jesus was, was promising would happen. It was a revelation, a foretaste of the glory of his own resurrection and ascension. And so this event is one of the most profound things any of his disciples ever witnessed in his presence. It's rather unlike any of the other signs and wonders that he performed where he was helping people or healing or feeding people. This was something that just happened to him. And it was amazing. And uh, it absolutely overwhelmed them, uh, the ones who were there. And it should overwhelm us as well with joy at the thought of his glory, especially since now we're on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension which the transfiguration was pointing to. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, help us to consider your word, to truly hear you, and to be transformed by the Spirit of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in 16, verse 28. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we pick up here where we left off last week. I know most of you are gone, but uh, you can listen to the sermon online if you want to. Uh, The transfiguration is strongly connected to what came before. Uh, Jesus was calling his, uh, he he was teaching his disciples about his own death and resurrection. And he was calling us to share in his life by taking up our crosses and follow him share in his life that way. He, he wants us to be with him, to participate in his life with God, which means joining him in loving people who are difficult to love, picking up our crosses, loving for, uh, suffering for love's sake. And that's, that's his life. It consists in giving himself up for others. One could say in losing himself. That's, that's the life of Christ. That's where true life is found. So with Jesus... We see his cross, uh, it transforms our conception of the cross. The cross is transformed from an instrument of torture into an instrument of love. And instead of seeing only death in it, now we see life in it because of Jesus. Because that's where we know him and meet him and join him and love like he loves. So the crucified life with Christ is the only true life. And it is inevitable life, life that cannot be stopped even by death. Life that conquers death, inevitably, because it's divine. So Jesus speaks of his death, but not only his death, also his resurrection. And he promises resurrection and glorification to those who lose their lives for his sake. And the transfiguration is the picture of this, this promise. It's it's the promise that the life of Christ, the life of costly love the life of taking up a cross and following him, the life that we're called to share with Christ, it doesn't end in death, but it leads to glorious resurrection. The transfiguration is the promise of glorious resurrection. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there's a lot of debate uh, about what Jesus means by this. Um, 
You know, whether he's talking about his disciples seeing his, uh, his resurrection or his ascension. Or even whether he's talking about his distant return in some obscure sense. The Son of Man returning with his kingdom or something like that. But I think we can trust the context of Matthew here and also Mark and also Luke. When they all record, you know, Jesus making this promise to his disciples that they'll see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then the very next thing that happens is that they see his transfiguration. Right? Between his teaching that we looked at last week and his transfiguration that we're looking at this week, there is only the space of a week, like we did in real life. Just the space of a week. Not only did none of his disciples die over the space of that week, they didn't even taste death. They didn't even suffer before seeing proof of the coming resurrection and ascension of Jesus in his transfiguration. But only some of them who were there, as he says, some of you will see this, uh, only some would be witnesses to his transfiguration. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Uh, So it's significant that each of the synoptic gospels, again, that's Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, the way they, they take similar angles and perspectives on the life of Christ, it's significant that each of them mention this, the elapse of that time of about a week uh, for two reasons that I can think of. First, it really is keeping this tightly linked with what came before, right? If you just start reading here in, in chapter 17, verse 1, and, uh, you know, come across after six days, well, it begs, begs the question, right? Six days after what? Well, then you go back and look what just came before. It's linked. It demands that we ignore any unfortunate chapter divisions and read this in connection with Jesus teaching about his death and resurrection and joining him in sharing his life. And secondly, I think it's mentioned, uh, it, it at least vaguely rings a bell. It reminds us of the Sabbath, right? It says, after six days. What happens after six days? The seventh day, right? Which, uh, the original Sabbath, the seventh day of creation, it was the end of God's work of making all things. It was the consummation, the fulfillment of his glorious purposes. So the Sabbath was always meant to signify God entering his rest, but also humanity entering glorious rest in the presence of God. So the transfiguration points to the completion and the perfection and the fulfillment of God's purposes for our humanity in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes his disciples up a high mountain, which throughout the scriptures uh, has been the kind of place where God meets with his representatives, meets with his people, but also just with the representatives of his people. This is where God meets us. It's quite possible that, you know, originally the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, as it's mentioned as the source of major rivers. Where do major rivers come from? They come from high places, right? So, uh, Garden of Eden, God met there with Adam, who was the head of humanity, to make a covenant with Adam as our representative. God met with others on high mountains to reveal himself to them. Uh, God met with Moses several times on mountains to speak to him, to give his commandments for the people. When Moses came down uh, from such meetings, it, it said that his face shined for a while with the reflected light of God's glory. Uh, One of those times that Moses met with God on a high mountain, uh, God instructed Moses 
to bring three others with him. You've got Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. This is Exodus 24. And then also 70 of the elders of Israel, all these representatives coming to meet. And they all saw the God of Israel and they ate and drank in his presence. God also met with Elijah on a mountain. So it's a place for God meeting with people like Moses and like Elijah. A place where God makes known his glory. A place where God makes promises to his people. It's a place where God comes down and where his people are brought up. So Jesus takes these three disciples with him to behold the glory of the God who comes down to meet them. And he was transfigured, metamorphosed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So if Peter, James, and John had had any clue in advance about what was going to happen as Jesus took them up this mountain, they might have thought something like, Jesus is taking us up, and the four of us together are going to have this experience of God's glory. Maybe there'll be some vision of God like Moses had, some vision of God like Elijah had. After all, they're going up to the kind of place where God comes down to meet with people like Moses and Elijah. But when they arrive, it's Jesus who radiates the glory of God. Unlike Moses, whose face merely reflected the light of God's glory, it's Jesus' face shining like the sun, the source of the light. Jesus' own face is the source of the light of the glory of God. And Moses and Elijah appear, those who have spoken to God on the mountain, and here they're speaking to Jesus. Jesus is the unique center of this heavenly vision. Jesus is the point of contact between heaven and earth. Jesus is the God who has come down to meet his people, to make his glory known, to make good promises to us. And notice, please notice, that Jesus gathers his people around him, and that includes the living and the dead. Look, here are Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses has been dead for well over a 1,000 years, 1,200, 1,300 years maybe. And Elijah, even though he didn't die, but entered God's presence alive, taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. Uh, Elijah had been gone for at least seven or eight centuries. Nevertheless, here they are in the presence of Jesus. So remember that if you ever have doubts about the reality of heaven or eternal life, if you think that death brings a complete end to your existence. God's people live with him beyond death. Jesus' people live with him beyond death. They live forever in his presence. The full significance of all this has not yet dawned on his disciples, though. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Clearly, it's an important moment. (laughs) He understands something of it. He's excited and he's overwhelmed. Uh, Mark and Luke make it explicit that he didn't know what he was saying because he was afraid. Right? Uh, you just you know how you say silly things when you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're in the presence of somebody that you've got on a pedestal, right? Maybe you'd blather a bit if you met your favorite actor or your favorite athlete or your favorite politician. <laughs> you have a favorite politician? Uh, 
There you go. <clears throat> Maybe you'd try to say something that made you look smart <laughs> in their eyes, make you look important. It's good we're here, right? By taking their time and attention. Maybe treat them to lunch or something, right? These are the heroes of Israel gathered together. What an opportunity to spend time with these three, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. What kind of stories would I have to tell others after spending a weekend with them on the mountain? Uh, Coincidentally, maybe this is why Jesus forbids them from talking about this. This is not something that they can just boast about and tell stories about. Peter fails to perceive the uniqueness of Jesus here. Uh, He doesn't quite put the clues together. Uh, He suggests making three tents, three dwelling places for three very important people. But the focus is entirely on Jesus here. Moses and Elijah, as great as they are, uh, are merely the supporting cast. So God interrupts and overrides Peter. Peter is saying, Lord, it's good we're here. I can make tents for the three. He was still speaking when, behold, you know, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So uh, those familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, will recognize the cloud of glory. Uh, It signifies the presence of God among his people. We read about it in our Old Testament reading. Jennifer read from Exodus 33 and 34. Moses said to Yahweh, who is the God of Israel, is the one true God. He says, please show me your glory. And Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh from from the cloud. Yahweh proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Such a strange way to talk about yourself, saying your name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious and so on. From the cloud on the high mountain, the one true God revealed the one true God as if he were introducing someone. Here at the transfiguration from the cloud on the high mountain, the one true God revealed the one true God as if he's introducing someone. This, this is the revelation of the triune God, one divine person making known another divine person, the Father revealing the Son to the disciples here. The Father reveals Jesus to be his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. This Jesus, and not some other, not some imaginary Jesus that people can talk about, This Jesus who teaches about the blessed life of the kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom of God, this Jesus who speaks of taking up the cross of forgiveness and the cross of forbearing love, this Jesus who will suffer rejection and crucifixion and death, this Jesus is Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. In the flesh, this Jesus is the beloved Son who pleases the Father. This is what defines Jesus best and most of all, that he is the beloved Son. There's nothing more ultimate about him. There's nothing more true of his identity. There's nothing more eternal concerning his nature. Before all worlds, he is the beloved Son. It's the deepest reality. There's no deeper reality Conceivable. He is the beloved son. 
It's the foundation of anything else that can be called reality. He is the beloved son. And we could spend more time meditating on what the father reveals here about the divine nature of his son. But we should not overlook the fact that it is not only in his divinity that Jesus is revealed to be the son of God. The voice from the cloud declares, this is my beloved son. And he's talking about a human being who is standing there with his disciples. As the apostles maintained throughout the New Testament, and as the church has discovered throughout history and articulated in its most important councils and in its vital creeds, we always have to hold on to two things, really three three things. We've got to hold on to these three things. Jesus has a divine nature. He is God truly and fully. Second, Jesus has a human nature. He really is human. He really is a man, truly and fully. And these two natures are united inseparably in his one person. That's the third thing we've got to hold on to. We've got to hold those things together. His divinity and his humanity Hold them together. These are of utmost importance to our confession of faith. <clears throat> and without these, there is no Christian faith. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is somehow miraculously, wonderfully, both of those. <clears throat> if Jesus stands there shining gloriously like the sun in full strength, and these words stand over him, this is my beloved son. It is not only as the eternal Son of God in his divine nature, but it is also as the Son of Man, a created human being with a nature like ours. That for 2,000 years, the church has spent a lot of time and energy confessing and defending the truth that Jesus is God. That first thing we've got to hold on to, we've really been majoring on that. He is God, He is divine. Because, you know, when you look at a human being, it is not intuitive to realize that that's what he is. So the first thing we've got to do is defend his divinity. The main thing we've got to do, it seems like, throughout the history of the church is defend his divinity and see him as God. So in a sense, it should be more obvious that this Jesus is a human. That's fundamental. That's obvious, right? Everybody interacted with him like a human being. But we've spent so much time focusing on his divinity that we've perhaps forgotten also to emphasize his humanity. So when we read about this transfiguration, we tend to think of it in terms of it reveals his identity. If you read commentary after commentary, it's just focusing on uh, this reveals his divinity. Which is, of course, absolutely true. In John's gospel, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is a vision of the glory of the eternal divine Son of God, the way he was before he also became a human being in the incarnation, even, even before the creation of the world himself, uh, the world itself. This is what the Son of God is like in his glory, the beloved Son of God. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is also 100% human and that in this transfiguration, this man is shining this way? This man is glorified this way. This man is, is declared to be the, the beloved son of God in this way. 
In Jesus Christ, a human being shares in the glory of the beloved Son. In Jesus Christ, a human being shares the glory of the second person of the Trinity, the divine glory of the one and only true God. This human being loves with the love of God as a human being. This human being who will suffer and die, this human being will be resurrected and raised to immortal glory at the right hand of the Father, seated on God's own throne. So the glory that the the divine Son shared in the Father's presence in eternity is the same glory that this man Jesus was to share in his Father's presence. In Jesus Christ, God comes down, and in Jesus Christ, humanity is exalted to the highest place. And there's a meeting. The beloved son didn't, uh, you know, invite his disciples on this little field trip uh, there to terrify them with this vision. He brought them up with him to reveal himself to them as the promise, the guarantee of the glory that awaits him also awaits them by God's grace. When the disciples heard the voice from the cloud, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. So the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, the, the glory of the beloved Son is not something wielded against us in any way. It is something shared with us. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all worlds, God of God was born into this world as one of us, and he's come to share his divine sonship with humanity, as has been God's plan all along from before the beginning. And now Jesus calls his God our God, and he calls his Father our Father. Now we are adopted in the Beloved, united to the Beloved by his Spirit, with the Spirit of the Beloved Son in us, crying out to God, Abba, Father. We can never enjoy this beloved sonship, this special relationship with God. You can never enjoy it apart from Jesus Christ, but only in and through our relationship to Jesus. But for those who belong to Jesus, who have entrusted themselves to him, this, this is now, as it is for him, this is now the deepest reality of our lives. This is the first and truest thing about us. This is definitive of our identity and our eternity. We share the life of Jesus Christ in his relationship with God the Father as the beloved Son, with whom God is well pleased. Now, if we're to do what the Father says and listen, listen to his Son, which is sort of a way also of saying do what he says, you know, listen to him, pay attention to him, do what he says. then you can make no mistake about what this means. It does not mean that our glory will always always be obvious and compelling to everyone in this world. We live as children of God in a world that rejected the Son of God. The transfiguration made it obvious and compelling who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. 
But that was a temporary vision. It was a promise to hold on to. It was, it was a momentary sort of peeling back of the curtain to reveal something that is not normally obvious, that is not normally apparent. And when the disciples looked again, they just saw Jesus not shining like the sun anymore, not enveloped by the glory of the Father in the cloud, not announced by heavenly voice, not attended by ancient heroes of the faith, just Jesus, still on his way to the cross, still living in a world that would deny his glory. Sure would be easy if he just walked around like he was transfigured all the time, and people couldn't deny his glory, right? The transfiguration was an assurance that this Jesus, the suffering servant, despised and rejected in the world, this Jesus was truly the beloved Son of God. He pleases God in spite of appearances, in spite of the grisly circumstances of his forthcoming death. It's a revelation of something that will become apparent in the future after his death. With his resurrection, his glorious ascension into heaven. But for now, for Jesus and for those who share in his life in this world, this glory goes largely unrecognizable. It is hard for people to look at a humble, crucified man and see the beloved Son of God. It's hard for people to look at us and see the beloved children of God. But that's the point of this transfiguration. God the Father gave proof to these witnesses that this man on the road to the cross has his full approval, has his full support, his full endorsement, all of his love. We can see the transfiguration as a prophecy of his resurrection and ascension, which was uh, fulfilled already in history, and his identity as the beloved son has already been vindicated once and for all. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His life of love, his life of self-gift, his cruciform life, of service was vindicated by God. It was proven to be true and faithful, and it was declared for all the world to believe. This is the very thing that is most difficult for people to believe, that a life of pouring oneself out for the sake of others, that that life is godly, that that life is godlike, that that life is glorious, that Such is the life of the eternal beloved Son, that such is the true foundation for all that is called real by God. Since these disciples, you know, they've just seen Elijah, maybe they're kind of wondering, why didn't he come with us, right? These guys could have helped us in our mission. They're asking Jesus why people say Elijah has to come first, right? If he has to come first, why did he stay? Why did he leave? Why isn't he joining us? at this stage in the glorious mission, the triumphant mission, right? <clears throat> because they all assume that Elijah was prophesied to restore things, to make the world, you know, a pleasant place, to remove suffering and uh, make it easy for the people of God in this life. Isn't that what restoration means? But Jesus told them they needed to learn to reinterpret life and reinterpret the scriptures and reinterpret the fulfillment of prophecy And everything in light of who he really is, in light of the fact that the suffering servant 
is truly the beloved son. Jesus answered them, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So if they're looking for the reincarnation of Elijah, so to speak, not really actually the reincarnation of Elijah, right? But, uh, but if they're looking for some Elijah to return to be a glorious hero, bringing victory and peace to God's people, then uh, they're going to miss how John the Baptist actually was Elijah. He wasn't the one they were looking for. Because John the Baptist, you know, he showed promise, but he was chewed up and spit out by the world. Didn't accomplish much. All John did was polarize people, expose what was in their hearts, bring to light their fundamental allegiances for Jesus or against Jesus, for his kingdom or against his kingdom. Maybe that was the restoration of Elijah. It's not the kind of success that we expect from great figures in this world, but Jesus is saying John the Baptist was a great figure, even though he wasn't recognized in the world, even though he was rejected and killed. That's how it works with God's beloved children. That's how it works with God's only begotten, beloved son himself. People might not recognize his glory, but his is the highest glory. The glory of the beloved son was revealed at the transfiguration and it was fulfilled and vindicated in his resurrection and ascension into heaven. According to God's will and the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, a man has ascended to share in his own glory. And by his grace, he's shared that glory with us, the glory of living his life here on earth with him and after him, even though that glory is not recognizable. And it's the glory of living his life in heaven with him, which will be recognizable after we've been raised in a resurrection like his and gone to be with him where he is. Can you perceive the glory of the beloved son in his suffering service and in his cross? Can you believe it? The divine glory is found in the life of Jesus. Would you count the beloved son of God as your brother? Even though the world would distance itself from him and from you, would you share the glory of Jesus, even though it means your love is misinterpreted and thrown back in your face? The transfiguration, as it points to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, tells you, you know, today you might limp and crawl and slink along in this world but a day of metamorphosis is coming. When you see the beloved sun face to face, shining like the sun in his full strength, and you become like him in the twinkling of an eye, an utterly new and glorious creature in the heaven of God's presence. That day is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to hold fast to the testimony of the apostles about uh, who Jesus is and what he's done for us so that we can know and trust your good purposes for us, so that we can take courage in this world to join your beloved Son and follow him in this life and in the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
As we prepare to come to the table, let's stand and confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed.